Greetings. This is Hear Her Sports, the podcast for everyone who loves stories by and about women striving to improve in and outside of sport. I'm your host, Elizabeth Emery. Since the very first episode almost eight years ago, I've talked to female athletes from a range of sports, ages, abilities, and goals. Obviously, you are already here listening, but check out the full list of guests with all the show notes and images on hearhersports.com. Today's guest is Dr. Margot Mountjoy, the lead author of the new IOC Consensus Statement on Relative Energy Deficiency, or REDS. Margot brings us up to date on what is REDS, new research, how to use the new practical assessment tools developed along with a consensus statement, who has REDS, and who knows about it. Knowing about REDS is really important because there are long-term and sadly sometimes irreversible consequences of relative energy deficiency in sport, which is basically not eating enough for your activity level. Margot covers bone health, a main area of concern for those with REDS, and the critical time period in our lives for laying down bone strength. But all is not gloomy in the episode. Margot makes clear that so many athletes are healthy. What she cares about most is athlete well-being. With her work on Red S, she hopes to guide more athletes to performing better and staying injury-free long-term. Be sure to stay tuned through the very end for Margot's final message. My guests and I often talk about Red S. I've linked to many of those episodes in the show notes if you would like to learn more. I've also included links to the assessment tool Margot mentions and to the report in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Before we get to the conversation with Margot, I am excited that Women's Running Stories and Hear Her Sports partnered with the running company Wazell, who always works hard to support women's runners. They sponsor elite female athletes, develop unrecognized runners through the Year of the Underbird program, and make high-quality, long-lasting, well-fitting, thoughtful running clothing and accessories. Regular Hear Her Sports listeners know how important appropriate gear is for performing your best and enjoying sport or physical activity, or whatever you choose to call it. Just as important is to feel supported, considered, and listened to. Wazelle gets all those things right. Founded in 2007, Wazelle is a bi-women, four-women athletic apparel brand rooted in running. It started as a quest for non-poofy running shorts, but soon transformed into a mission to design great product, build the sisterhood, and improve the sport. No matter where you live, your pace, or your personal relationship to the sport, Wazelle has you covered. Find out more by clicking the banner at the top of the Hear Her Sports website, or go directly to wazelle.com. That's O-I-S-E-L-L-E dot com. Well, hello, Margo, and welcome to Hear Her Sports. It's a real pleasure to have you here. I'm super excited to hear about your work and everything you've been doing recently. Well, thank you for the kind invitation. My pleasure to be here. So I want to start with something basic. Your research and your practice focus on elite athlete health and well-being, and I'm quoting there. Tell me what that means exactly. Well, my focus is on keeping people healthy. As a physician, that is my goal in life. And as a practicing family physician, I worked with people, families, children of all ages. Part of my practice was working with athletes and athletes from the community, athletes that were weekend warriors and athletes at the elite level. My more recent focus in my practice has been around the Olympic level and international level. And by definition, Elite means those who 
uh, compete at the international stage, so representing their countries at international competitions. Well, I'm glad I asked you that because I hadn't realized that you had, I don't want to say normal practice, but <laughs> normal practice before you got involved in this other stuff. Indeed. Well, I worked as a family doc for 25 years, but I have been doing sport medicine for over 30 years. So my focus has been um, really dual up until then. Once I left family practice, I got into academic medicine. and I'm now the assistant dean at McMaster University in the medical school. Well, great. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to have you here, or the main reason I wanted to have you here, is you are the lead author on the new IOC consensus statement on REDS. So I'd like to jump right into that and talk about that. I know people who've been listening to the podcast have heard me talk about REDS, but you know, I think maybe we should start with what exactly it is, particularly since my understanding with this IOC consensus statement is there's sort of new thoughts about it. Yes, indeed. Uh, as the science evolves, we too must evolve to keep up to date and to give the best care we can for our athletes. So with a consensus statement, we spent three and a half years reviewing the scientific literature that had occurred since the previous edition of the consensus statement and updated our information. So there are lots of new concepts that we've introduced. So your question was, what's the definition of REDS? And it's a great place to start. So REDS is a syndrome and REDS to define the acronym is relative energy deficiency in sport. So this syndrome consists of impaired physiological and or psychological functioning that's caused by exposure to problematic low energy availability. And we define problematic low energy availability as the low energy availability that's prolonged and severe in nature. And this syndrome can result in many detrimental outcomes, which include uh, problems with energy, reproductive function, musculoskeletal health, so increased injury risk, problems with immunity, and cardiovascular or hematological health. And then together, these concepts individually and or synergistically lead to impaired health, well-being, increased injury risk, and decreased sports performance. So it is, it is a complex phenomenon. Uh, but it's one that's not so rare, and we're delighted to be able to update the science and provide guidelines for clinicians and for researchers to improve the health and well-being of our athletes. I think one thing that I'm always struck by whenever I think about REDS and talk about REDS is just it's so all-encompassing. Um, well, it can affect many body systems. Our bodies are complex things that have interactions with each other, and that, that's a phenomenon of who we are as creatures. So one system can affect another system, and it's, it's quite a complex organism, the human body, and it can affect many different body systems. And we also know that it affects many different sports uh, individuals, as well as both male and female cisgenders. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned all that. And then the other thing that I think about a lot is how how it really impacts long term. So, you know, I sometimes wonder if people think it's going to impact them during their sports career and then they stop eating in that way and everything is fine again and it's not. 
Indeed. Some of the uh, effects are short-term, and we're grateful for that, that can be easily reversed. And some potentially are more long-term and more difficult to reverse and can be long-lasting. And in particular, we're looking at bone um, bone structure or bone density, we call it. That one is really hard to reverse. Well, it's not reversible quickly, and in some cases can't be reversed unfortunately. And that's because we have a critical window in our, our, our lifespan of when we lay down the majority of our bone strength, and that's during adolescence. So if during adolescence we're in a period of energy deficit or develop REDS, and we don't correct that until we're in our late 20s or in our 30s, we miss that critical window of bone accrual, we call it, or the ability to lay down that strong bone structure. So that one is more challenging for sure. If you do have somebody who's gone through adolescence with REDS, what are your steps? With respect to bone or it just in it, general? With, it, with the bone, because you were talking about how there's right. that window. Yes. So we do everything that we should do to correct bone. We correct the energy um, intake. We make sure the mismatch between the intake and the energy expenses is, is improved. And we make sure that the body is has the required calcium, vitamin D, uh, magnesium, things to build bone, as well as weight-bearing um, stresses through the bone, which are important for building bone strength. And then it just takes time to see whether how much the body will improve its own architecture. And it does improve. It will improve after that critical window. It just may not improve back to what would have been or could have been if that had occurred during that critical period of time in adolescence. Why did you want to get involved with working on this consensus statement and what excites you about it since you have done it? <laughs> well, thank you. That's a great question. My focus as a female physician and a former female athlete was, was on female athletes. And the REDS actually stemmed from something called the female athlete triad, which um, started really in the 1980s with the pivotal work of Barbara Drinkwater, Professor Drinkwater, and Professor Ann Laux from the United States, which really were the pioneers in this area. So I became involved in the female athlete triad. So the female athlete triad is a triad of three things. Originally eating disorder, later it became low energy availability amenorrhea or lack of menstruation and thin bones. In my practice, though, I worked with endurance athletes, male and female, and I saw males affected with similar phenomenon, only they didn't have menstrual periods. So for years, I was telling my men that they had the female athlete triad. And of course, they thought I was kind of loopy telling them this, but um, they did. They had the same effects, only they just didn't have menstrual periods. They had low testosterone, low libido. Um, they had other sex hormone deficits. So when the 2014 came along and the International Olympic Committee uh, asked me to expand the female athlete triad or update it with the latest science, the group got together and looked at the science and realized that there was enough evidence that this occurs in males and that we needed to change the name female to be more encompassing. And it wasn't a triad because we found many more body systems involved. So we changed and expanded as the science expanded we changed the concept from the female athlete triad to relative energy deficiency in sport, which would then now encompass males as well as the other body systems that are affected. In your experience, who is getting REDS? Who has REDS? 
Uh, well, we see it in elite athletes, um, people who spend a lot of energy. So those are athletes in endurance sports. We also see it in weight category sports where people try to cut weight to reach a lower weight category than perhaps their bodies are meant to be. We see it in any sport where an athlete comes with an eating disorder. So they restrict their energy as opposed to intentionally through their psychopathology, as opposed to the previous example where they probably aren't restricting their energy intake. They're just spending a lot of energy. So that's the endurance sport. We see it also in the aesthetic sports or judge sports where appearance makes a difference. So that would be sports like artistic swimming, diving, uh, equestrian sports, figure skating, gymnastics, and dance. So while, while dance is the performing arts and not a competitive sport necessarily, they are a judged sport through their audience and appearance is important. So these are the general categories of sports that are affected by Reds. I think you've covered every sport. <laughs> well, we don't see it very often in the precision sports, so things like archery or uh, shooting. Um, we don't see it so often in those sports be, right. because the energy demands aren't such. But of course, any individual who has restrictive eating, either through disordered eating or eating disorders, whatever their sport, can be affected, of course. Another one is gravitational sports where gravity has an effect. So the lighter you are, the better you perform. So gymnastics is that, but also things like ski jumping or climbing, competitive climbing, where gravity makes a difference to your sport performance. So those anti-gravitational sports are also um, at higher risk. Now, not everybody in these sports have reds. Um, many athletes are very healthy and perform at very high levels without the development of reds. And that's paying careful attention to matching their energy intake with their energy expenses and having healthy, balanced training practices and a healthy approach to their body image and requirements. So I don't want to paint the picture that everybody has reds because, of course, they don't. Sure. But the those are the higher risk sports. Do you think that people are getting reds intentionally? I'm not like, hey, I want to get reds, but I want to restrict my calories. Or as you talked about in some of the endurance sports, it's simply not knowing enough about how to eat properly or fuel properly. Like what's leading to what seems to be a, a pretty high prevalence of reds? Indeed, I think it's multifactorial, um, as things often are complex in life. I do think in some instances it's unintentional and it just happens because of lack of knowledge and, and it just it just happens. I think in some instances um, athletes um, are intentionally trying to restrict their intake to become lighter. And, and we know this. Um, there's a lot of peer pressure to look a certain way. And, and maybe an athlete sees someone else who performs better than them and they're, they're smaller. So you think, oh, well, maybe if I lose some weight, I will be as good as them as well. And indeed, there are um, sport cultures where coaches encourage a certain body physique for optimum performance. And we know that that is a reality in sport. And at the very high elite level in the adult athlete, we can safely manipulate someone's body composition into an ideal weight um, or body composition to um, maximize their performance. And it can be done very safely and very healthy under the control of a, a scientist, a dietitian, and a physician. 
at the very elite level only. We should not be manipulating body composition and those individuals who are still growing, those under 18, or those who are not at the elite level. So you can get a performance advantage by having a certain lighter, more streamlined physique, but really that should be reserved for the very elite only and done under the guidance of professionals. What I think is interesting is I recently sort of had this uh, sort of mental shift because somebody said, you know, you don't have to just lose weight. You could also gain power or strength. And I think it's interesting that we generally only think about the losing weight component of it when we're thinking about the strength-weight ratio. Yeah, that power-to-strength ratio is very important, and um, that's a very astute observation. And no one ever won a medal for being skinny. It really <laughs> right. isn't. What you want is the sport performance, and what people often have this myth that it's tied into weight. And in fact, to perform well, you do have to have skill, you have to have talent, you have to have strength, you have to have power, and you have to be ideal um, health, optimum health. And so really, I think the emphasis on weight is probably because of societal influences on weight, which is in society in general, especially in women. And it's really an erroneous myth in my mind. To me, it's not about weight. It's about health. It's about performing well. It's about feeling well. It's about having optimum power to strength, power to weight ratio for some of the sports. I sure hope you're enjoying this episode with Dr. Margot Mountjoy. If you are, please consider supporting the show with a cup of wonderful coffee. These days I'm making pour-overs at home using coffee from a local roaster. I have a cup right here. All cups of donated coffee go to editing and producing this podcast and therefore increase the amount of media coverage for female athletes and women in sport. The recent Wasserman study found a rise in sports media coverage about women, but the reality is that coverage of female athletes in mainstream media has not gone up much at all. The rise that the Wasserman study found instead came in great part from small enterprises like this one. We can use your help to keep us strong and well-fueled. To make a donation, go to buymeacoffee.com slash hearher or to the support tab on hearhersports.com. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo Jo. Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network. Now, let's return to the conversation with Dr. Margot Mountjoy and find out if people even know about relative energy deficiency or REDS. Do people know about REDS? You know, I feel like I'm in a little bubble and think about REDS quite a bit, but I'm (laughs) sure most people do not. Well, I'm delighted that you are um, thinking about it a lot because you're part of the, the solution of knowledge translation. So thank you for your important role in knowledge translation. Studies have been done on athlete and coach uh, knowledge of female athlete triad and or reds, and it is pretty poor. 
Uh, so I think the word is getting out. I think the new consensus statement has been very helpful at disseminating the knowledge of REDS. And I'm working right now at the International Olympic Committee on Knowledge Translation Initiatives to reach target audiences, including athletes, coaches, sport organizations, and the sport medicine health, allied health professionals that work with athletes. So that knowledge translation is very important part of the science part that's been published. To me, that's first. We have to be solid in our science definitions and recommendations, and then we need to translate that science because I am very sure that no athlete reads my consensus statement in the <laughs> British Journal of Sport Medicine. Uh, you know, I work with a team of very talented individuals from around the world, and together we've come up with what I think is a very solid science scientific document. But our work isn't finished. We need to translate that information that's in digestible or uh, understandable bits for the specific target audiences. And thank you for your role today in reaching some of the target audiences that need to hear this messaging. Well, I'm glad you talked about all that because I have a friend who is not a coach. She's a PT. And because she's a woman, I think, and because she's interested in nutrition, she has suddenly become the expert of REDS at her high school. She's super smart and interested. And so, yay, good for them. But not every school is going to have that person. So I'm just wondering, like, you know, you s disseminate the information, but is there going to be somebody at middle schools, high schools and colleges to be that person who can then tell the athletes? And that's a very good question. Thank you for raising that. And that's why one of the target audiences in our knowledge translation initiative is to reach sport organizations. So you have NC2A in the United States. Um, we have U Sports in Canada. There's uh, other organizations around the world. And it's their responsibility as well to disseminate the knowledge down through their networks, through to their individuals. You have also, I believe in the U.S., you have a high school sports um, organization and um, one hopes that those organizations will also take a leadership role in ensuring that their individuals across their networks are also informed. We also will be targeting through conferences and, and uh, communications through to allied health professionals uh, information as well. And so using a multi-pronged approach to our knowledge translation, hopefully we will reach individuals. Um, and it takes time <laughs> and repetition and changing the messaging. So people understand. Sure. Hypothetically, at a middle school, let's use middle school as an example, like what would your ideal situation, like what are you envisioning at this middle school that would be ideal for the athletes at that school to make sure that they weren't getting reds or knew about reds at the very least? So middle school is a very critical time in an individual's growth and development. This is where a young person is developing their autonomy, they're developing their health habits, and peer pressure is really important. So that actually is a really optimum time to talk about healthy nutrition to fuel sport. That's all they should be talking about. We shouldn't be talking about body image, uh, about what they should look like. We should be talking about how to feel good, how to fuel their sport healthy, how to make healthy food choices, and how to translate that into sport performance. So this is a really critical time for those particular athletes, not to mention also, that's right before their critical period of bone acquisition, which is during high school. So making sure they have healthy nutritional habits around um, protein, calcium, and some vitamin D, 
magnesium and having some weight-bearing sports because that's often the age where we lose young girls in sports and we want to keep them physically active for other reasons uh, but also for having the bone stimulation of of weight-bearing exercise. And who is telling them that information or how are they getting that information and like in what format? Well, I'm not sure how they're getting it, how I'd like them to get it. Yes, how would, how would you like them to get it? <laughs> I would like to get them to get it through classes in health, through their physical education in school, and through their sport organizations. They may you know, uh, play sports with different uh, sport organizations outside of school. So there's many different ways they can get it. And one hopes they can also get it from their parents. I mean, parents put food on the table. Uh, parents do the grocery shopping uh, and so parents can make decisions around healthy food choices and the types of food they put on the table you know do you put milk on the table with dinner or do you put diet coke on the table so these kinds of things are really important at many different levels of where they can get the messaging from right I think you already answered this but what are you seeing as sort of the role of umbrella organizations like, you know, you've mentioned sports organizations, high school organizations. Uh, We could also include the IOC. Like, what's their role in disseminating this information? Or what would you like their role to be? (laughs) Um, So I think the IOC has has taken this initiative on and been a very big supporter of athlete health. It is the initiative of the medical and scientific department at the IOC to promote athlete health and well-being. And they have been very supportive of this concept by um, funding the experts to come to Lausanne to have our consensus meetings and supporting our our work and publication. Uh, We don't get paid for our work, but they do support our work and support our publication of the work. They will be supporting also our knowledge translation initiative. So I think the IOC is doing a fair bit and I'm grateful for their support. International federations, so these are the sport governing bodies that make the rules of sport, also play an important role. And I'm delighted that, um, say, that FIS, which is FIS, the Ski Federation, have made a rule change so that the lighter you are on your ski jump, uh, they change the ski length to negate feeling light because these athletes were very, very light, unhealthy light, uh, because the lighter you are, the further you fly. So they've made a rule change to try and mitigate that advantage. So you're saying that that if you get lighter, you have to use heavier skis? Uh, it's not heavier skis. They change the length of the ski to have, add more resistance. Ah, okay. Interesting. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, it is. It's physics. Okay. <laughs> it's yeah, very yeah, interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, the other federation that's doing uh, something about REDS is the International Federation of Sport Climbing, where they're implementing rules of health checks to make sure that their athletes aren't suffering from reds um, or being, you know, often too thin to be healthy because, of course, the lighter you are, the faster you climb. So that sport federation is in evolution of developing their health uh, initiatives to improve the health of their athletes. And I think there are other international federations that haven't made rule changes but are looking at reds to see how they can improve the knowledge base in their coaching and judging systems. Um, But moving down the chain into the National Olympic Committees and the National Federations, they also have a role to play in educating their their systems. So that might be their team physicians, that will be their sport organizations that reach uh, the athlete health support team. 
And then you've mentioned already, or we've discussed already at the school level, so at the varsity level and NC2A, or I think you call it collegiate level, and then also down through high schools and middle schools. I'm glad you mentioned that rock climbing example, because preparing to talk to you, I read an article about what was going on. And and this is going to lead to my next question about assessment tools. But will the tools being used by the Rock Climbing Federation be able to accurately assess athletes who are too thin or are unhealthy so that you're not sort of false negative or false positive? Right. No, that's a very good point. Historically, the International Federation of Sport Climbing has used body mass index as an indicator of ill health. And in fact, we know in the science that body mass index is not a sensitive indicator of REDS. It is um, not um, global. Uh, We don't have norms for people from different parts of the world that look different and are actually different. So it it is a very white westernized body measurement. So it's not applicable globally, and it is not a sensitive indicator of REDS at all. We know that you can have normal body mass index and be quite unhealthy with REDS. And we also know that you can be a petite, tiny individual and not have REDS. You'll have a low body mass index because you're a small individual, but you will not have REDS. So it is not in the recommendations of the IOC to use body mass index as an indicator of REDS. We have other more sensitive and more specific. So that's being able to rule it out, false positives, false negatives um, that are better um, underpinned by science to identify those with REDS. So I'm actually I'm working with a small team with the International Federation of Sport Climbing to try and myth bust the 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 fact that body mass index is the absolute indicator of health because it is not. So let's go from there to the assessment tool or tools which are part of the new uh, consensus statement that you've created and explain how those are going to work and and how they're being used. Thank you for that question. We spent a lot of time developing a practical tool for sport medicine or the allied health team around the athlete to use. Because there's not a single test you can do to define REDS, wouldn't that be lovely? Like you lose your period, you do a pregnancy test, you either yes or no are pregnant. It's lovely, simple. But REDS is not so straightforward, not so simple. So we've developed a clinical assessment tool to help clinicians assess for REDS. So we've developed something we call the IOC, International Olympic Committee, REDS CAT Clinical Assessment Tool, and it's our second one. So it's the IOC REDS CAT tool. And it is a three-step model. And the first step is screening bigger populations to identify those at risk. Um, So this would be if you have an entire school or an entire um, squad of athletes. And so you can do some uh, questionnaires or a clinical interview to identify those athletes at risk. Then once you've identified those athletes at risk, we move to step two, and that's doing um, certain tests. So blood work, bone density, uh, asking their history questions, which we've defined. And then once all that information is gathered, then it's a clinical diagnosis by a physician, and that doctor should rule out other causes for the signs and symptoms. So let's say a, a woman hasn't had her period in three months, that physician should do a pregnancy test to make sure she's not pregnant. Um, you know, we must rule out pregnancy before we say they have REDS. 
so those are just that's just one example of ruling out other causes and then the physician would make the diagnosis based on plugging some numbers from their blood work and their history into our calculator and then our calculator defines whether the athlete is in one of a four colored risk range so let me explain that if the athlete after the physician puts these uh, different parameters into the calculator is defined as being in the green zone, they do not have reds. They are healthy, they are no risk, they have full training and competition. Then if the athlete is determined to be yellow, orange, or red, then they are suffering from reds, yellow being mild, orange being greater severity or risk, and red being the highest severity or risk. And as you can imagine, the criteria for yellow is you know, one or two of the indicators that we've developed from the science. Orange has more of them and red has the most. We also offer treatment and training recommendations for each of the colors. I mentioned already that green has full training, full competition with no restrictions. In the yellow zone, we recommend treatment, but they can continue full training and competition. If the athlete is in the orange uh, light area, we recommend closer monitoring treatment as well. Um, some aspects of their training or competition may need to be modified to decrease their energy expenses. And then finally, if the athlete is found to be in the more severe red category, they will likely need to stop some of their training. They need more intense treatment and in fact in some cases if it's very severe may require hospitalization. Uh, so that's a much more serious situation and we've defined that um, uh, very clearly in our paper which of those situations. Is the tool being used now? Yes, it's available as of September. Clinician just has to Google IOC REDS CAT 2 and it will come up and it can be used by physicians in their offices uh, in, in practice. Uh, it's available on the BJSM, British Journal of Sport Medicine website. It's available on the International Olympic Committee website. It's found through Google. I did it last night. It comes up <laughs> through Google quite easily. And what has your feedback been or what kind of feedback have you been hearing? Oh, quite positive feedback, actually. Uh, it's much easier to use. It's much more underpinned with science than the previous one. Um, it is uh, easy to implement. It doesn't cost a lot of money, um, depending on what tests you do in step two. There is flexibility within the, the clinical assessment tool for physicians to make clinical judgment. And so that's, that's part of the art of developing a tool that will work in all situations. From what you said in describing the tool, it sounded like there were some very objective measurements that were included, such as blood work. Yes, very objective measures are included. Blood work is definitely one of them. And in particular, we look at sex hormones. We look at thyroid hormone. Um, we also look at um, hemoglobin, ferritin, uh, cholesterol. And if relevant to that particular athlete, if they've had a bone stress injury, so bone stress injury is one of the parameters that we look at. And there are two types of bone stress injuries. There's the regular bone stress injury, and then there's high-risk bone stress injuries. And the high-risk ones, we weight more heavily in our calculator than, than those that are not in the high-risk areas. 
We also um, look at whether or not they have risk of eating disorders. So we know that individuals with a higher score in the eating disorder screen are more likely to have REDS. And we also look at bone mineral density. So not everyone will have that bone mineral density measured, but that's measuring for the thickness of their bone or strength of their bone. And uh, that measurement also is an objective measurement. So when you plug in these objective measurements, as well as their history of bone stress injuries, amenorrhea or periods, uh, abnormal periods, then these things get calculated in our calculator and come up with a rating or a scoring. Obviously, this is a female athlete podcast, but I'm really glad that you mentioned that these new tools and consensus statement include Ben, because this is going to prevent people from thinking this is a women only issue or it's a women's thing. What has, you know, like what have you discovered more recently about men being included in in REDS? Yes, I recognize this is a, a women's uh, podcast. And in fact, this is probably the only part of sport medicine where there's more information on women than there is on men. <laughs> um, sadly, in the rest of sport medicine, sport science, males dominate um, the population of study populations and also researchers and clinicians. So this is an area we should celebrate that we have information on women. But you're right. One runs the risk of, oh, women shouldn't do sport. They could get the female athlete triad. We must protect them against it. So I, I really push against that and say this is how we try to protect women from having problems. Um, but as a clinician, my objective is to help those who need help. And when I was looking after men who needed help, but there was no label <laughs> or no way I could treat them other than telling them they had the female athlete triad, I knew that something needed to change to look after a population that needed help. So that's why the inclusion of men is important to me, even though I am a promoter of women's sport. I also am a promoter of health for all. And so it was important to include men. So we have learned a lot more about men than we, we uh, knew in previously when we first came out with the inclusion of men. And what we do know is that their bodies respond differently to energy deficits than women's. That shouldn't be a surprise. It's not a surprise to me. The um, thresholds that were found by Anne Lauchs in her lab on women aren't the same in men. It seems that men can tolerate energy deficits more easily than women can. And probably if you look at us as a species, women reproduce and men don't reproduce. And so having another organism requiring energy on top of um, ourselves requires more energy. So that's why our systems are probably more sensitive to energy deficits than, than male systems. We also know that men have the same sex hormone deficits. They don't have lack of periods, but they are affected by low testosterone. We also know that men have similar bone structure problems than women have. So there's, we're learning more about the men. I do want to encourage more um, studies in male athletes in REDS, I strong, more strongly encourage more scientific research in sport medicine and sport science on women across the board, not just in REDS. Of course. I can't argue. Of course. <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> for sure. So what are the next steps for you in terms of REDS, REDS research, what you're doing with the IOC? So I have a few, a few objectives. Um, the, the number one I've mentioned already is knowledge translation, and that's really um, encompassing a lot of my attention at the moment. Uh, the second is, is actually very important. Part of our package when we published the consensus statement was publishing 10 other papers to support the consensus statement. 
One of those papers is on how to research REDS more accurately, and that's a paper led by Kate Ackerman and, and group. And what we'd like to, to encourage scientific researchers is to improve the quality of the research and to address some of the areas that aren't being studied. So I'd really like to encourage the science folks to up their game, shall we say, in terms of how, how we study this, this initiative. And then there's gaps in our knowledge that need to be met and working with grad students and other scientists around the world to fill those gaps so that the next time that we sit down to say, okay, what's new and how do we need to change our recommendations, we have answers to those gaps so that we can continue to evolve our clinical tools to match the science as it, as it comes forward. Well, before we sign off, I feel like I think about REDS a lot. So maybe there's a question that I missed that I should have asked. Is there anything like that? Or is there anything that you want to leave listeners with before they go? Um, well, thank you for your question. I think you've been quite thorough. But I would like to have a closing message that by far most athletes are, are healthy and want to remain healthy and performing well. And for me, that's the most important thing. When I say to an athlete, and I recognize that they have REDS, I don't say, you need to gain weight, you're going to get thin bones because frankly an athlete doesn't really want to gain weight and they don't really care about their bones because it doesn't hurt them perhaps at the time but what I say is I want you to perform better or do you want to perform better and remain healthy and injury free because that's what treating REDS can do by preventing the outcomes of REDS we can actually prevent bone stress injuries we can prevent injuries we can keep them healthy so that they perform at a higher rate so I think that's an important message that we want to impart to our athletes, that paying attention to this will actually improve their well-being, their performance, decrease injuries, and decrease uh, illnesses caused by low immunity. And I think that's a good messaging for coaches, for parents, and for athletes to hear. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Thank you. Because I often call REDS a very cruel syndrome because when you first start losing weight, your performance mm. often does improve, and exactly. then it, and then the it just tanks. Yes, and I've seen this so many times that an athlete came and they said, "Well, you know, I lost a bit of weight, so I got faster, and then all of a sudden, I got slower." Right. And so I decided, well, it worked last time to lose weight, so I'm going to do it again. So they try and lose more weight to get faster. And in fact, they just get slower and slower and burn and crash with a stress fracture. So that's why it's so hard sometimes to change an athlete's mindset. That in fact. It, if we change your dietary habits, you'll actually improve your performance. Oh, no, last time when I got lighter, I improved. So it's really hard to myth bust um, with athletes. Yeah. Well, thank you for that final message. I appreciate it. <laughs> okay. Thank you for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for your important role in knowledge translation. Well, thank you. Proper fueling for sport is one of my absolute favorite topics, so thank you to Dr. Margot Mountjoy for joining me to discuss the IOC consensus statement on REDS. If you are new to Hear Her Sports, welcome! There are so many former guests to discover, like sports nutritionist Heidi Skolnick, who was way ahead of things talking about the female athlete triad back in the early 90s, Laura Moretti-Reese on fueling the body, the great Nancy Clark on the same, and an early episode with Olympic gold medalist pole vaulter Katie Najat on the many ways to look healthy. On our website, there are easy ways to reach me, sign up for the newsletter, listen to all of the episodes, 
browse through show notes, and to support the show through Bookshop and Buy Me a Coffee. Go to hearhersports.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. I know there is a ton to listen to out there, so thank you for choosing to spend time with Hear Her Sports Podcast. There's some really important information in today's episode, so spread the word. I am sure there is someone you know who would like more information about Reds and proper fueling for their sport. Text them right now about Margot's discussion. Hear Her Sports is a proud member of Evergreen Podcast. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, like Women's Running Stories, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. I'd love to share stories told by female athletes. I am super glad you're here and hope you got something to motivate your training or proper fueling. Thank you for listening and for being part of the growth of women's sports and sports science. Until next time, bye-bye. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, or padel, as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with a pro tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!